Welcome SGO listeners. We are back with our SGO task force on board certification support. My name is Tracy Lynn Hall and I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine. This is part of our podcast series that is helping with board certification support. This one is specifically focused on ICU and perioperative considerations. It's coming to you from our education committee task force. I am joined with two wonderful speakers today. Hi, I'm Jillian Shea and I'm at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. I took my boards in 2021. I'm Lavinia Palvoy Parsons. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at McGovern School of Medicine at University of Texas, Houston, and I took my boards 2022. So this initial phase of our podcast will be leading up to the 2023 annual meeting. If you haven't already checked out our other podcasts on caseless creation and radiation oncology considerations, please be sure to check those out. Those are available through the SGO website as well as other podcast platforms. Additionally to this podcast, we are going to be having ones coming up on each of the disease sites that'll be referencing high yield study materials. So be on the lookout for those to come out later this month and in January. We're also very excited to announce that we have partnered with ABOG for live sessions at the 2023 SGO meeting. The Friday of that meeting, we'll be having a representative from ABOG joining us to discuss the logistics of the test, as well as the assessment and scoring process. We're also during the meeting going to have several sessions where participants will meet in small groups with task force facilitators to discuss hypothetical cases and have some opportunity to discuss other material. Be sure to keep an eye out for these sessions when you're registering for the annual meeting and sign up if you're interested in joining us. For this podcast, for ICU and perioperative considerations, they're both enormously broad considerations, and they lead to a great deal of angst and worry about how to prepare. Here, we're going to focus on some of the good resources that we all found helpful when we took our boards and successfully passed. For our speakers, when you're studying, where is a good place to start looking for what might show up on this test? I think an initial good place to start is the ABOG Gynecologic Oncology Exam Bulletin. It has a comprehensive list of possible topics that you might be questioned on. It's also really important to remember that this is an exam on gynecologic oncology practice, not on being an ICU physician. So you shouldn't be worried about looking outside of our classic study materials when you're looking at things that might come up. There are great articles on PubMed, and you can always do an extensive lit search yourself, but you can also look at concise review sources like UpToDate. That's great. Why don't we go ahead and dive in first to some perioperative considerations? So when we're thinking about what's almost guaranteed to come up, is there anything that candidates need to consider that comes to mind for you? Looking at your case list is absolutely crucial and looking at the comorbidities. Anything on that list is fair game to ask about how you manage your patients off of universal protocols or you might have host hospital and local guidelines that you might have to follow. If you do have local guidelines or practices, make sure you know them. For example, at my hospital for all of our HIV patients, we check viral loads and CD4 counts within two weeks prior to their scheduled cases to know their risk. And some of your common comorbidities, that's really important to know how to manage those things. Things like diabetes with glycemic control for diabetes, hypertension management, or managing a patient who's a smoker and counseling on smoking cessation. We do treat time-sensitive diagnoses. And so we do all know that we can't always ideally manage these conditions before going to the OR but the board examiners might ask you if you had time, what would you ideally like to do? One thing that does seem to always come up, even though we do have those time sensitive cases in the ideal world, how would you assess a patient for risk prior to going to the I think OR? Some of the things you can consider are the NISQIP calculator or the frailty index. 
These are very helpful and just be aware of these calculators. You don't need to know the exact things that calculate, but definitely know the components of each of these calculators. Also, don't forget that this might be, this might include being asked about when should you refer someone for a pre-op risk assessment to maybe their PCP or their cardiologist or other consultants. And the AVOG bulletin does include core competencies. And one of those is communication with other professionals. So this could be a way that they might bring in that kind of question. Preoperative counseling and decision-making has definitely been a hot topic in the past. This can include things like alternative to surgery, timing of surgery relative to other treatments such as chemo or radiation. Are there any gynecologic oncology trials that you think candidates should know to be able to prepare ahead of time for these types of questions? I think probably some of the top things that come into my mind are the neoadjuvant chemotherapy trials and data for ovarian cancer or the Landoni trial for cervical cancer. Perfect. Another hot topic that seems to be there every year is fertility smearing counseling that we do in the perioperative and preoperative setting. What's a good place to look for fertility smearing counseling guidelines to do your counseling? That's a good question. You know, there is pretty limited data on fertility sparing treatment of cancer and a lot of it is based on consensus. I think the NCCN guidelines are the best place to start for the disease sites, and they have really good information in the text at the end of the NCCN guidelines as well. And then for specifically for cervical cancer, I really like the up-to-date article on fertility sparing treatment of cervical cancer. ERAS, or enhanced recovery after surgical protocols, are also certainly something that has dominated perioperative and preoperative management in recent years. I know there's an SGO ERAS subcommittee which, as part of the education committee. Where's a good place for candidates to look for this information? The first place to start is to be sure to know what you do at your institution. And beyond your institutional protocol, there are great materials on this topic. I like to use the BMJ article, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Society Recommendations. That's from IJDC in 2019 by Nelson. There's some also high yield resources from the subcommittee itself on SGO Ed Connect website. They include podcasts on protocols as well as how to collect data in your own institution that you've implemented, which is another way that you can get questions about core competency on quality improvement that they might just kind of sneak in there. Well, that's definitely a lot to think about before I ever go to the OR with a patient. What are some intraoperative considerations to prepare for? It seems kind of obvious, but be prepared to think about what you remove, when you remove it, how it's removed. For example, if you do sentinel nodes, be able to explain when you do sentinels versus a full lymph node dissection versus debulking of enlarged nodes. And this also includes knowing what kind of technology you have at your institution, as well as the published data on sentinel lymph nodes in uterine, cervical, and vulvar cancer. Also, you probably want to consider when you're doing an open versus minimally invasive approach. If you do a scoring system to decide what procedure you'd like to do up front, like a debulking for ovarian cancer, you probably use the Fugatti score. And so you probably want to know the components of the scoring data as well and the data behind it. Another topic that comes up is when you do bowel resections, would you do a primary anastomosis? Do you divert them and make an ostomy? There is a really good SGO surgical education webinar and videos available on SGO Connect and on all things ostomy that's really high yield, including one specifically on low anterior risk. Also might get some anatomy questions. This might just take you back to the basic science years of your medical school, but there's something that 
is really helpful to look back, especially at your anatomy textbooks, since they'll be pretty much very helpful for you. Knowing what you absolutely cannot resect and when to abort a case based off anatomy considerations is also considered fair game. Injuries are also always something to think about. I know we always do our best to avoid it, but what can candidates do to prepare for those questions that come up on intraoperative injury? I think bowel surgeries is definitely number one that we should consider. They kind of go hand in hand with doing bowel resections. So you got to study that material when you're preparing for your planned and unplanned bowel work. The other thing you would consider is urinary injuries. Some gynecologic oncologists do their own repairs and some don't, but don't be afraid to be honest either way. If you don't do ureteral repairs, know the general concept. It isn't a new resource, but I find the Moreau's textbook, surgery textbook is fabulous. And the online atlas of pelvic surgery, or even tutorial videos on YouTube is just a really concise ways to conceptualize the steps of a ureteral, ureteral anastomosis or a psoas hitch or a borarite flap. Other things that you might injure, vascular injury and nerve injuries, they might come up in your test. And these are something that we don't deal with a lot. So everyone is going to phone a friend and call a consultant in to help with these things. But it's, it's really important to know how you would recognize these injuries, how these injuries are commonly sustained, what has to be repaired and when to repair it versus what can be sacrificed are probably the most important things regarding those injuries for us in this test. Well, we always try not to have blood loss. It does definitely happen when we get into our radical surgeries and our debulkings. What are some things to think about with regards to intraoperative blood loss? Mouse transfusion protocol is definitely something you should be aware of. Almost every institution has some kind of protocol. Some institutions may actually have multiple for different indications. Like my institution, we have one for surgery patients, but a different one for OB cases. Not only important to know your institutional protocol, but also be aware what's in each component of product, the volume of each, the ratio when to replace each of the products. Those are all very testable questions. Okay, after surgery, there's definitely a lot to think about. What's a good way to study for post-op considerations? I guess studying these by system base seems to be the best approach for the GI system. This can include reading upon bowel obstructions versus ileuses or signs of anastomotic leaks, TPN administration, short gut presentations, and of course, management of fistulas and got to think about risk factors that go with it and how you diagnose it and just managing it in general. And also, in addition to what Lavinia said, there can also be urinary tract fistulas. So like having a leak after surgery from the bladder or from the ureters and the factors that went into it, diagnosis and management may all be things to prepare for. And then some other topics postoperatively that come up, um, things like anticoagulation and VTE risk and prevention or diagnosis might come up. You might have some kind of institutional protocol on your VTE prophylaxis. And other good places to look at recommendations include the recent ACOG practice bulletin on VTE or MCCN guidelines or ASCO guidelines. This really seems like a lot to think about. I know we can dive deep just with perioperative considerations since we spend so much time in the operating room, but let's go ahead and move on to some ICU consideration. I know this is an incredibly intimidating topic. When I was studying, it was definitely something I was worried about. So what's important to remember here? Like I said before, this is a certifying exam for GYN oncologists, not pulmonary critical care physicians. So you basically need to know how your institution handles the ICU. Like at mine, we have a closed unit. 
So we need to think about how we interact with and co-manage our patients with these teams. You could probably reach out to one of your ICU colleagues to help you if you're getting stuck on a topic. There's also some really good resources and quick sections of ICU topics. For example, in the principles and practice of gynecologic oncology or in the gynecologic oncology handbook, those are quick reads. But also some of the GYU EDU lectures have good lectures. But honestly, I think going back, our study group is an excellent resource and you can get exposed to different management styles and the way that they interact with the ICU. So I will be honest, back when I was studying, there were several rumors going around about the ICU topics on the exam. I was told I needed to know very specific details, such as how to calculate TPN requirements. While I know we cannot predict what the examiners ask and none of us are privy to any insider information, what of the rumored topics going around do you think candidates need to study for? Honestly, there's a lot of overlap between our outpatient duties and inpatient duties that seem to be the most high yield to focus on. For example, like the pulmonary function test. There's sometimes we use this in our intubated ICU patients, but we also use these for our pre-chemo evaluations, such as patients undergoing uh, chemotherapy with bleomycin. Another thing that uh, they might test for is injection fraction and cardiac testing when you're giving drugs like oxorubicin or receptin, knowing when to order cardiac testing and what are normal things for like your target LVEF might come up. And then in the ICU, electrolyte management and those results might come up. Again, there's overlap between this in ICU and with chemo, but think about when to replete particular electrolytes, when it can cause um, critical complications, and how to manage electrolytes with some of the comorbidities that we might see. For example, if you have bowel obstruction or somebody has a prolonged NG tube and they might get very hypokalemic, those are types of electrolyte issues that might come up for us. So nutrition is another overlapping subject that we can talk about. You can look at the outpatient setting, such as examples when you refer patients to nutrition for supplementation, or when you might have to give them an appetite stimulant. There's some good NCCN and ASCO supportive care guidelines that you can look into. The ICU and perioperative patients, it can come in in the form of when to give TPN, how you diagnose refeeding syndrome, what nutrition labs do you get to assess these patients, and so on. There can definitely be lots of overlap, like you just mentioned, between our perioperative considerations and ICU, especially when it comes to complications. What might candidates want to focus on when they are looking through these quick sections on ICU management? To me, the biggest one is shock. So for us, shock is usually hemorrhagic or septic in our specialty. Most institutions have shock protocol, like mass transfusion protocol for hemorrhagic shock or like a septus alert for septic shock and, you know, checking serial lactate and things like that. At mine, there are definitely best practice advisories that pop up in Epic with sepsis triggers and knowing those sepsis triggers and then the management algorithm at your institution is important. Another post-op complication that can occur is aspiration. So and this can easily be used question about vent settings and mode. Again, of course, all units usually have respiratory therapists and intensivists that do all the nitty gritty details. But I think it's important to look at the general concepts that may be needed. Or occlusive thromboembolic disease like DVTs or PEs could be something that crosses over between our operative patients in the ICU, as well as affecting our non-operative admissions. So reviewing those ASCO or CCN guidelines on BTE and oncology patients is a really good way to study for those questions. Also, 
some of those patients might need thrombectomies, some of them might get hit. Hit can be a rare complication that occurs in these patients, and you can look up a quick reference, like up to date for that workup and management. And that's another thing to think about. We talked a little bit about the overlap with chemotherapy in the ICU. Chemotherapy complications can definitely put our patients in the ICU. Are there any high yield references for candidates to consider when studying drug toxicities, especially those grade four toxicities that may put someone into the ICU? Absolutely. There's some quick one page SGO connect ED chemo flashcards that are pretty high yield when it comes to toxicities. And there's also a great ASCO article on the management of immunotherapy related toxicity. NCCN also has a management guidelines of immunotherapy as well. Um, NCCN also has other supportive care guidelines that can be helpful to review. And then ASCO is another organization that has great guidelines. I did rely heavily to study, but also in my clinical practice, I use their neutropenic fever guidelines, which are available online and very helpful. Other complications can be unique for our patient population in the ICU and include some things that we kind of consider unicorns, such as tumor lysis or hypercalcemia that we as the oncologist definitely have to think about. Any good tips on where to study for these topics? I know most of us don't want to say this, but honestly, up to date was the easiest to look at, manage these scenarios since we don't see them every day, but they do come up regardless. If they're on your case list, you want to spend a little bit more time looking into these topics. We also occasionally have patients that will go to places like the neuro ICU with brain mets or even cord compression. I definitely respect the judgment of all of my neurosurgery colleagues and my neurologists in these cases, but what are some ways I can prepare for questions in case there's any scenario like this on my list. Actually, UpToDate has a really nice flow sheet on when you would give SBRT versus whole brain radiation versus start with chemo, but also tumor board discussions with our RADONC colleagues on their decision making was really helpful for me. And honestly, just having the conversation with the neurologist and neurosurgeon colleague on these topics were incredibly helpful too. These interactions completely included discussions of prognosis and treatment options for tumor beyond the neurologic system to help kind of gain insight to the particular interventions that are available. While it's not really related specifically to ICU, end-of-life counseling is definitely something we have to do both in the ICU and outside of it, even though it's never fun. How might this come up on the exam? Probably case list-based, like if you have patients on your case list that transitioned to hospice or became, you know, became deceased during and they're on your case list, then discussion about stopping oncology interventions might come up, and this might involve advanced directive counseling, code status, or other end-of-life planning. And for your patients that are in the ICU, this might include when you decide not to escalate care versus withdrawing care as well. Wow, this truly is some great information. I know it's a lot of material to get our head around, but I truly appreciate the time for both of our speakers as well as all of our listeners for joining us today. Please be sure to tune in for our other podcasts that are coming up as well as the in-person events at the 2023 annual meeting. On behalf of the SGO Education Committee Task Force on Board Certification Support, I'm Tracy Lynn Hall and truly appreciate it. Thanks so much. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. 
If you have suggestions for future SGO on the go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.